Well, good morning again, Calvary Bible Church. Um, it's good to be with you again this morning, and uh, it's my privilege to teach adult Sunday school again. This is our third uh, installment of this series on church history. If you haven't been with us, we're studying Christianity and the church um, in the early life of America, so both in its colonial age and um, the, pretty much the 1700s and the 1800s as well. Um, t- today, uh, we have uh, some things I want to cover particularly, uh, but first I want to give you a quick review of where we've been, uh, just, just, just barely. Um, as we left last week, uh, we spent, or two weeks ago, we had spent significant time talking about uh, the settlement of the colonies both at Plymouth and Massachusetts. Uh, so both of those had different um, uh, settlements, one in Plymouth by a group of separatists from England, and then in Massachusetts, uh, the Puritans actually founded a colony there called the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Uh, so we talked about those uh, two colonies and their settlements and their foundings and the differences in the two. So catch up if you'd like to by listening to that if you haven't. Uh, today we're going to talk a little bit more about uh, just kind of the, the development of the church in primarily New England, uh, primarily at the Massachusetts Bay Colony, and um, also then talk about some other groups of Christians that came on the scene in America during this time as well. So we're still in the 1600s, and at the conclusion of this, we should be able to get to where next week we start talking about uh, the beginnings of the Great Awakening in America, which will be exciting. We get to talk about characters that we're familiar with, like George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards, and to some degree, John and Charles Wesley as well. Um, but today's lesson, uh, as we talk about this development of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, uh, we need to talk about how it was pretty fragile in the sense of how uh, it, it, they desired to build a community that would be as they would coin it according to the Bible, a city on the hill that would shine forth for all the nations. So we also want to talk about a couple groups that had their beginnings in America. We want to see uh, just really how um, the church in America begins to be pluralistic. It's not just, you know, the Church of England per se, like it is in England, or the Lutheran church that's in Germany, um, or the Catholic church that's in Spain and France and other areas as well but just that other groups are heavily involved in the formation of church life in the colonies. Uh, So that'll also lead into our next point, which is to see why religious freedom became an important aspect of American Christian life. Just a couple things I want to just say from the get-go here. I'm not making a specific claim, and I don't intend to. It's not the goal of this uh, Sunday school lesson to make an argument for or against the fact that if or if America is a Christian nation or not. What I do want to point out, though, is that uh, America has played an important role uh, by God's providential hand in building God's church throughout the world and obviously uh, building God's church here in America as well. And so America has had a unique role by God's providential hand and, um, and part of that is because of the religious and biblical foundations that were set by the early settlers of America and in New England and throughout the original colonies as well. 
So just wanted to get that off my chest. So if you're wondering, hey, where's Matt going with this? What does Matt think about this? Probably not going to answer that question as uh, purely as you would like. Um, but my goal is instead to talk about <clears throat> kind of the development and diversity in colonial church life. <clears throat> okay, so you should have received towards the end of last week an email that has all your instructions to uh, guide you through both Sunday school and the worship service. So here's the handout. You should be looking for the page that says early American church history in the top right and development and diversity and colonial church life. Let's start this morning after you've gotten your handout ready uh, and let's read from the scriptures. If you could turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2, we're going to read verses 9 through 12. We're going to talk about who we are as God's church in this section, and then I'll pray for us, and then we'll get going with our lesson for today. So 1 Peter 2, verse 9. This is very familiar for those of you that have been around Calvary. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. <clears throat> so God, we come before you this morning. And we praise you, God, that we have been called out of darkness and into your marvelous light by the gospel, by Jesus' perfect sacrifice on our behalf. Lord, we praise you that we at one time were a people that were objects of your wrath, but now, Lord, we are objects of your mercy. God, we praise you and are full of gratitude for your great mercy shown to us at the great cost of uh, your son's sacrifice. So, Lord, we give you praise for that. And, Lord, I pray that as we uh, move through this life and as we even consider uh, how you've built your church throughout history and how you've providentially used the church in America to bring about your purposes, God, I pray that we, too, would glorify you. Lord, I pray that we would see these things and give praise to who, for who you are and for your faithfulness through the ages. So God, I pray that you would uh, remind us again of your faithfulness to all generations. Lord, we know that um, um, you have promised to save everyone who has come to Christ to the uttermost. So we praise you, Lord, that, that you are the one that saves and that keeps and guards. So Lord, I pray you would keep and guard this body of believers at Calvary. Thank you for them. Lord, I pray that you would uh, continue uh, to work in us as we uh, are in unprecedented circumstances for our lives. But Lord, I pray that you would reveal even more to us how you are certain. Um, you are the one that is definite and all things, Lord, are according to your plan. Pray that we would trust you in that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> All right, so to get on to our lesson for today, the first thing I want to talk about are just several things that changed uh, throughout 
um, the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Uh, last, last week we talked about it being founded in 1630 under the um, control of a Puritan man by the name of John Winthrop. He was the primary leader that brought a decent amount of people through. And by the time 1640 came around, upwards to 30,000 people had immigrated from England to Massachusetts, or as the land becomes commonly known as New England. Um, and other colonies within 10 years are established, not just the Massachusetts Bay, but two other colonies are, are established. That's the colony of Connecticut and then the colony of New Haven, which eventually becomes part of Connecticut as well in the future. So there's so many people coming on board and coming across the ocean to flee uh, the English throne at the time that was persecuting the Puritans. Uh, many people were coming across the Atlantic in order to worship according to their conscience in uh, the Massachusetts Bay Colony in Connecticut and New Haven. Um, around the middle part of the 1600s, that, that number begins to decrease, uh, and that's primarily because uh, the Puritans actually take control of the government in England. So first they take control of Parliament, and then they overthrow the king and they set up Oliver Cromwell as the leader of the country. He was the leader of the Commonwealth of England. Uh, so throughout the 1650s into to, to about 1660, England lives relatively peaceably um, where there had been battles between uh, the monarch and his people and the Puritans in some ways. So the Puritans were in power from about 1649 to 1660. Historians like to call this the interregnum because it's in between two different monarchs. Uh, I think it's Charles I and Charles II. Eventually, though, the monarchy was restored and immigration to colonial America uh, spiked again towards the end of the century. Um, Charles II and James II, after they became kings again in England, um, began persecuting those people that were not Anglican. Um, however, in 1689, just for a little piece of British church history to think about, um, James II is removed from the throne, and William and Mary become the joint king and queen of England. And in 1689, they pass what's called the Act of Toleration, which allows for various views of Christian faith to be practiced in England, uh, where previously under the, those other kings, it was just allowed uh, for them to uh, practice Anglicanism. So that's, that's one thing. So there's these, this abundant growth of people that are coming uh, to the Massachusetts Bay Colony and into New England. So that's, that's pretty, that can be burdensome as more people are coming, and not everyone that came uh, in the second wave of people were as committed to the Puritan ideals as those original Puritans were. So the next section we have in your handout is the section called the halfway covenant, and I will describe what that is at this point. But the goal of the Puritans was to preserve the purity of the church. That's why they're called Puritans. They want to have a pure church that's based on biblical forms of worship and biblical doctrine. And their hope was to maintain the unity of a civil society as well. So the idea of covenant um, was for the Puritans something that united the individual to the family, the family to the church, and the church to the broader society. This was how their community or their commonwealth could be a city on a hill. So they really stressed the 
the idea of God covenanting with nations. And similar, that was similar to how uh, God covenanted with Old Testament Israel. Let me make a clarifying point right here. Just like I was trying to tell you about, I'm not trying to make a stand for America being a Christian nation, yes or no. I'm also not talking about just the general term covenant theology here. Um, I'm not making any pros or cons statements about um, that type of theological system. But what I'm trying to do is paint you a picture of how these Puritans believed God was working through his covenant with them. So issues like the nature of Israel um, and the church and how those relate from the Old Testament to the New Testament is really not part of what I'm talking about here. My goal is to just talk about how the Puritans thought that the idea of covenant um, helped unify and form their community. So one of the important things was is the Puritans, like so many uh, branches of Christianity throughout the ages, believed in infant baptism. However, just because a child was baptized did not mean they became a member of the church. They were part of the covenantal community. However, in order to become a full-fledged member of a Puritan church in New England, one had to have a profession of faith. One had to have a conversion experience and be able to tell about that. They had to be Christians. They had to be saved in order to be full-fledged members of the church. And that matters. It matters that people are full-fledged members of the church because that impacted their ability to serve in the civil government as well in New England. So some things started happening. People came that weren't, didn't have a, a, a profession of faith. Uh, they were believed, they believed they were Christians just because they were previously baptized into their churches in England. But then even some of the second generation people uh, whose parents had come, these people had been baptized into the church, into the covenantal community. Um, these people began having children. But the second generation of people weren't having a religious experience or conversion uh, like their parents were, so they weren't able to profess that they were truly believers, and these people were not becoming members of the church. So you have a segment of society that's growing older, that are full-fledged members of the church and have the ability to serve in the civil government. And then you have this other group of people, uh, some of which are not Christians. They have not professed Christ, and they have not professed to be believers. So what do we do with those people's children in New England at this time? Well, we don't because I'm not there, but what do, what do the Puritans decide to do? And that's where they come up with this idea of the halfway covenant. Um, baptism for uh, the Puritans um, at this time was a sign of the covenant, much like circumcision was for the Old Testament Israel. It's not too different than our uh, Presbyterian friends say today. Um, at that time, Christians that had a conversion um, baptized their babies. If one chose not to do that, and they were a member of the church, they were considered to be an Anabaptist, more to that to come. Uh, that was a term of derision in the 1500s, and it continued as well into the 1600s. But for the New England Puritans, it's significant because this baptism of babies um, was how it bound the whole society together. They were children of the covenant. Um, and as I talked about, as these children grew up, some didn't experience conversions, others immigrated that hadn't had a conversion experience. So what were the Puritan leaders and clergy to do 
with these children and these people? How were they to be involved in society? And did the laws of society um, govern them as well, even though they weren't necessarily full members of society because they weren't members of the church, nor did they have the ability to serve in the civil government? Um, Are they and their children part of the covenantal community? So they came up with, in 1662, the halfway covenant. So they decided that these children of these second-generation non-believers could be baptized. So like their parents, these children would be members of the covenantal community, yet they would not be members of the church. Um, They would not be able to become a member of the church until they were converted. This meant that these people could not even take the Lord's Supper, and they were not able to serve in civil government. But it did allow for there to be some unity um, among all the people that were part of this uh, covenant community. Uh, Some people saw this as a dilution of Puritan principles and believed that this was placing the communal covenant over the church covenant. So some division started there. Eventually, um, it got to the point where church membership was not required for voting. Instead, the key factor looking at a person as to whether they had the ability to vote was if they owned land or not. So this was kind of the first major issue as you go into the middle part of the 1600s in the Massachusetts Bay Colony is that not everyone is as committed as those initial uh, families and people that came across in the early 1630s. But that's not the only controversial uh, thing that happened. Uh, You'll see I have the next thing. I have controversy listed. We're going to talk about three uh, different topics, two people and one event that happened in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. And the first is the involvement of a man by the name of Roger Williams. Roger Williams lived from 1603 to 1683. He was a Puritan minister from England who settled in Plymouth in 1631. Eventually, he became the pastor over the church in a local congregation in a smaller community just outside of Boston called Salem, and we're not getting to what you really know about Salem just yet, but we will get to that. He became the pastor at the church in Salem in 1633. Um, it became apparent as he was preaching and teaching that he had some extreme views. And here's just to lay out a few of them for you. When I say extreme views, they're extreme views to the people of, that were Puritan at the time, the people of the age, not necessarily to you and me. Uh, One thing he believed was that he thought the colonists had no right to the Native American lands. Um, He also believed that non-believers, so think about those people, those halfway covenant people, um, non-believers should not be held accountable to a social covenant uh, based on a religious system. Um, He believed it was wrong for civil magistrates to enforce church attendance and other spiritual disciplines. These he saw as a matter of the heart. He said, and this is an interesting saying, he said, christening, baptism, makes not Christians. So it's interesting that he said that um, because he's saying just because someone has been baptized as a baby doesn't mean they're going to behave like a Christian in the broader social covenant. Um, And he 
really uh, was upset and he saw attempts for Christians to rule the world through civil power as diluting the purity of the faith. He opposed infant baptism, and by doing that, that was the major attack that he made against the Puritans um, because he was really attacking the core of their society and their church life. So in 1635, it starts becoming well-known among the pastors and the leaders of those colonies um, what his views were, and he was expelled from the colony. It's kind of amazing. They said, hey, October 1635, we know that really harsh winter is coming. We're going to let you stay in the colony. We're going to remove you from your pastorate, but we're going to let you stay through the winter so you don't have to you know, go out into the wilderness in the winter. However, Roger Williams, being the stubborn man that he is, decided to take his leave in October of 1635. He winds up uh, in the spring of 1636 and in a place what we would now call Rhode Island, and he founds a colony with a few followers, um, and the name of the colony is Providence. Those of you that know your states and capitals will remember that Providence is the capital of Rhode Island, and it's the largest city in Rhode Island. And um, so Williams founds this colony there, and he actually has some followers. And actually some of the people from um, the Massachusetts Bay Colony and the other colonies actually follow him. Um, And he actually takes up a pretty good friendship with the Native Americans there, and they helped care for him throughout the winter. Hence the reason he called the town Providence, because he was cared for by the Lord's Providence. So there he he determined that the the best course of action was to pursue a Baptist belief system. However, he only remained a Baptist for a short period of time, um, and he didn't remain as a pastor for a long period of time in Providence. Um, He kind of had this evolving theology, and he coined himself and gave himself the name of a seeker throughout the rest of his life. But he was a thorn in the side of the Puritans of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. He wrote a book, and you guys that have been in my classes before know how much I enjoy these books written during this age because they have really great long titles, and you uh, usually can figure out what they mean. And he wrote uh, about John. uh, He criticized John Cotton, the leading pastor, in Massachusetts, and the name of the book was The Bloody Tenet of Persecution for Cause of Conscience in a Conference Between Truth and Peace. He wrote this in 1644, and what he was writing was he opposed the use of force to coerce people to become Christians or to practice Christian activities. So he didn't think that it was appropriate to enforce by the law of the land uh, someone to... um, observe the Sabbath, or to attend worship services, or to participate in daily Bible reading. Those were matters of the heart, and they were the individual's responsibility, not the state's responsibility. Um, The one, uh, so, so as a Baptist initially, and that's where Baptists end up going in a lot of ways, uh, the mode of baptism was different. It was um, in, it was immersion, So people actually physically got dunked and pulled out of the water, symbolizing uh, their new life in Christ. Um, And the people that were baptized were, uh, more often than not, mature uh, people that had professed faith as opposed to infants. Um, So that was one thing. The other main thing that happened here 
was he actually allowed for religious freedom, and he was tolerant of other views of religion. And at this time, the major religion is Christianity, and that's really the only religion um, that was in Rhode Island at the time. But Rhode Island was established as a colony where religious freedom and toleration was allowed for its residents. Uh, The only group of people that weren't allowed were atheists, so they were not allowed to be part of that, but those that had a religion had um, freedom to worship according to their conscience in Rhode Island. In Rhode Island also, they separated the religious institutions from the civil government. Now, they were separate in the Massachusetts Bay Colony, but they were kind of all interwoven within um, the covenant and the covenantal community, as I talked about earlier. Um, So as these, the religious and the civil government are separated, um, he believed that the government owed a duty to the people to protect those rights. So he believed the government was responsible to make sure that the people had the freedom of religion, the freedom to worship. Um, Some of the books I've read refer to him as the first Democrat. When I say Democrat, the little d, because he's concerned about the people. Uh, One interesting fact, a couple weeks ago I told you about the um, uh, Reformation Wall in Geneva that has pictures of some of the great, or statues of some of the great uh, reformers. It also had a, has a uh, sculpture of the Mayflower landing and the signing of the Mayflower Compact because of the separatists desiring religious freedom. Also, who else has a statue on the Geneva Wall? Much to my surprise is Roger Williams because of his promotion of religious freedom and toleration. So that's Roger Williams. Um, he kind of introduces and gives a home to Baptists in England or in New England. So we'll talk about Baptists here in a couple minutes, but we're going to talk about our next character now who kind of disrupted things in the Massachusetts Bay Colony, and it's a woman by the name of Anne Hutchison. Uh, Miss Hutchinson and her family came to New England in 1633, and they followed the lead of their pastor of the time in England, their Puritan pastor, John Cotton. Uh, she began, uh, she loved uh, Pastor John Cotton's preaching. She loved how he emphasized the free grace of God. Um, I, I would gather that we would line up pretty um, pretty confidently, I, I would say pretty confidently that we would line up with the view of salvation of many of these Puritans and John Cotton's view of God's sovereign, free grace, electing love for his people uh, really resonated with Anne Hutchison. Uh, she, along with some other women, began a women's midweek meeting where they would gather to talk about the sermon from the previous Lord's Day and pray together. Uh, this was not uncommon for either groups of men or women to do in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Um, but it does tell you something that uh, the, the Puritans valued women in the sense that they, this was happening in Puritan uh, congregations in England, and it was happening as well in the New World. Um, so the, 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 the love and the respect for women was evident in the Puritan world. Um, however, as she was teaching people, it became in some of the pastors in the local area and the leaders realized that perhaps some of the things that she was saying was bordering on antinomianism. So antinomianism is uh, no or without law. Um, so the idea that God's grace and law 
how do you how do those things correlate? And they accused her of being antinomian um, because they alleged that she stress, stressed God's free grace and that because Christians had the Holy Spirit indwelling, that they had no need for the law. Eventually, however, she went to trial. She presented herself really well, and she is really a, a stalwart under, uh, a person who understands the Bible and theology. Um, and she presented herself well, and it looked like she was going to defeat in the trial and defeat the uh, leaders and win the trial. But she lost any hopes of reconciliation with the leadership at one point and with the judge when she claimed that the Holy Spirit communicated directly to her apart from the Bible, which was just just not consistent with Puritan uh, theology at the time. Um, the revelation, they held the revelation of the Bible in high esteem, as we do. And at that point, as she's revealing that there might be continual revelation coming to her by the Holy Spirit, they kicked her out of the colony. It was the final straw for her. And she and her family were excommunicated from the colony for what they also referred to as Anabaptist leanings. So they ended up leaving the colony and landed in uh, the new colony in New York, which had recently be settled, had been settled by the Dutch. It was actually called New Amsterdam at the time, where she was killed. She and her family were killed in an Indian attack. Um, it's interesting to think about, though, the reason that she was on trial was the aged-old debate about the nature of law and grace in the life of the Christian, and that debate continues until today. But think about, that's how important uh, these matters were. So things like baptism, uh, so who gets baptized and when and what does that signify, and the nature of grace and law, these things are held in very, very important uh, views by the leadership and by the Puritans at the age. So you can see this is a very serious people that are concerned about right teaching and right doctrine. I think you could debate as to whether these were the appropriate measures. Um, however, it was important to them to not have um, the leaven of Anne Hutchison spoiling uh, the bread there. So that brings us, so we've talked about two people. So we talked about the halfway covenant. We've talked about two people, Roger Williams and Anne Hutchison. And now we're going to talk about one major event. And this is probably the thing, when you think about the Puritans in America, there's two things I usually think about. Uh, I would probably say before I started studying this severely, I would have thought of historically two things. One, uh, just the book, The Scarlet Letter, written by Nathaniel Hawthorne in 1850, which kind of described um, and painted a pretty poor caricature, caricature of uh, the Puritans in New England um, about how they were uh, persnickety and legalistic and um, um, hypocritical as well. And the second thing I would think of is the next topic we're going to talk about, and that's the Salem witch trials. So this happens. This is Salem is a small community uh, within the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Uh, there's Salem, and I think there's also a, a neighboring town called Salem Village. And so in 1692, many, I don't want to get into this too long. If you'd like to read up on the Salem witch trial, that is your choice. But what we're seeing is how this is affecting the social and uh, church life of the people in the colony. 
many people were accused and convicted and executed for witchcraft at this time. Approximately 20 people, 19 were uh, hanged, um, and t- another person was killed in an unfriendly manner. Um, there seemed to be uh, hysteria by young adolescents and also old men who had judicial hysteria uh, over re- reacting to various factors going on within the community. It wasn't uncommon for there to be witchcraft trials in the colonies, nor in Europe at the time. This was a great fear that people had. I mean, we're coming out of, we're a couple hundred years out of a medieval age, but there's still some concern about uh, the supernatural and the spiritual, um, something probably we don't think about enough, um, but they were overly concerned about that. So this is not a super unique thing that people were being put on trial for uh, witchcraft. However, the extent to what how many people were executed and then how they started bringing in other people that had impeccable character into the argument was a problem. So that's when the matter concluded, is when they started accusing well-respected people, including some major clergymen, um, uh, that the matter ended. And Increase Mather, which was who was the most notable pastor from Boston, spoke against it. And it's interesting that the the, the fervor that this created within the colony, and people were almost hysterical in their desire to, to stamp out uh, any sign of this um, mysticism or witchcraft. Um, but 20 years after the fact, so into the 1700s, uh, reparations were actually made to the families due to the overreactions of the judicial process. Just a few years after the events, one of the judges confessed to the blame and the shame of the ordeal. So much overreaction uh, was done at the time. So all these things kind of were prying away at the community and the covenantal community that was happening in uh, the Massachusetts Bay. So some religious fervor began to, to waver in New England as the 1600s ended, and that set the stage for the coming awakening that would occur throughout much of New England and the American colonies in the next century. So that's, we're going to leave New England for a second, and I want to talk about a couple different just people groups, um, or not people groups, uh, um, uh, branches of Christianity that made their way to the New World and had a major effect on it. Uh, The first is we're going to talk about are the Baptists, and then we're going to talk just briefly uh, about the Quakers. So first, about the Baptists, a couple things we need to talk about. So the first thing, I've dropped this word a couple times throughout uh, this lesson already, and that's uh, the term Anabaptist and Anabaptism. So just just the basics of what Anabaptism is, is if you just take the word, it's Anna meaning again, A-N-A at the front of baptism, and then baptism. So to be baptized again is someone who is an Anabaptist. So the idea is in Europe in the 1500s, I mean, prior to the Reformation, Everyone was baptized in their communities within the Roman Catholic Church. It was the only church of the age. And then the Reformers, uh, you're talking your Luthers, your Zwinglis, and your Calvins, all held to infant baptism as well. And, uh, but there was a group of people um, that initially broke away from Zwingli who started, read the scriptures, and believed that baptism wasn't for infants, it was for people who had made a profession of faith. So similar to what we were talking about with the Baptist and Roger Williams. So a profession of faith 
and then people would be baptized again, but truly baptized for the first time as a believer. So this is believer's baptism. So these, there's this idea that, so well, what's the big deal? Why are people accused of being Anabaptists in the 1600s? If you're telling me, Matt, that in the 1500s all they did was rebaptize people. Well, first of all, uh, baptism is a big deal. It's a really big deal. I, baptism, the Lord's Supper, I mean, battles are being fought over those ordinances and how they're applied um, just at, at an extreme level, the commitment that these people had to their views of those things. Um, I, it's something totally different than we experience today, I believe. Um, we probably could take some of the seriousness of that age and apply it in our evangelical culture today, and it would be good for us. However, Anabaptists, there's kind of the spectrum, um, a spectrum of belief within Anabaptism. It's not this monolithic, unifying uh, um, movement. You know, it's not like um, Lutheranism or uh, Puritanism in some ways, even though there's there's some nuances within Puritanism, but Anabaptist paints this really large spectrum, and the really to fit underneath the Anabaptist umbrella, the only thing you had to agree to, and this is this is just looking at it from a historical background, is to baptize again or to baptize people that were converted or believers. But you had this spectrum of people that were Orthodox yet lived radical, different lives. Okay, and then you had this other spectrum of unorthodox people who didn't hold to doctrines like the Trinity or um, the nature of Christ, the dual nature of Christ as humanity and his deity. They, they held divergent, unorthodox views to traditional Christianity. So you had this wide chasm between these groups, and then you had people all across uh, the spectrum. So you had the orthodox, the unorthodox, and these people that were Orthodox also had some radical views. They, they decided that the best thing was for them to live out their Christian life separate from culture. Um, that's where you get people like Mennonites or Amish live that way, but might hold to, to some degree, some Orthodox teaching. Where you get on the other end of the spectrum, you've got people that believe in rebaptism. They don't believe in the deity of Christ or the Trinity, and their goal isn't to, it, their goal is to reform society and almost take the lower classes of society and uh, provide almost like a social upheaval, kind of a pre-Marx, pre-Lenin communism in the 1500s. So you've got this large spectrum. So when people say Anabaptism, uh, one of the things that the followers, so Luther is, uh, is uh, kind of um, quenching these revolutions that are happening in Germany, uh, Zwingli's doing the same, and other people are doing that as well throughout the continent in Europe. But all these people that are, they're kind of all painted as these reforming types that want to um, change society. And they see that anybody that has the view of believers' adult baptism is fit within that category. So Anabaptists are severely persecuted throughout the 1500s. Even faithful Anabaptists were because they were lumped in with this other group. So the reason I talk about that is because it kind of becomes this uh, uh, terrible term. Um, Anabaptists kind of becomes the uh, one person I listened to this week kind of referred to the, the term Anabaptist in the 1500s similar to the way we would use terrorists in our age or 
um, other really, really uh, extreme ways of saying that. But that's what they did. Um, that's, so that's the Anabaptists in the 1500s. So the question is, and there's a lot of historical debate, maybe not a lot, but some, about, well, did, did the Baptists, since they hold to Anabaptist views on baptism, are the Baptist, Baptists rooted primarily in these Baptist, Anabaptists of the 1500s? Um, I would say there's some evidence to say that there is a little bit of a connection. Uh, the primary connection is baptism, and then there's some level of wanting to be separate from um, the rule of the magistrate at the time. So one thing that's really important to realize, in the Reformation, you have two major wings of the Reformation happening in the 1500s. I should have said this earlier, but you have the magisterial Reformation. That is, the Reformation that's going on in England. That's, the, that's Luther's Reformation. That's the Reformation that's going on with Calvin and with Zwingli. It's called magisterial because they almost are sponsored or in cooperation with their local magistrates. In England, obviously, that's with Henry VIII. Um, but these, this other wing of the Reformation, so this is that Anabaptist spectrum, so you have some on the right and some on the left of orthodoxy, that's the radical Reformation. And those are people that are trying to reform the Christian faith, so they're also wanting to break away from Catholicism because they want to be faithful to the scriptures for the most part, but they're doing it without the help of the magistrate. So you have the magisterial reformation and then the radical reformation, the Anabaptists fit in with that. So where do the Baptists come from, since we're going to talk about them in America? Uh, I would argue that they're more of an offshoot of the Presbyterian-type reformed movements who just embraced the view of baptism, of believers' baptism, and actually... There actually becomes a group of Baptists that come out of uh, Presbyterian and Reformed circles, and Puritan circles, uh, that hold to the doctrines of grace and God's, uh, God's saving free grace by his sovereign will. Um, and that is, those are called particular Baptists, and they embrace a traditional Calvinistic theology. Um, however, there were a group of Baptists who, like the pilgrims left England because they were being persecuted, like the pilgrims who were separatists. Yet they were Puritan in their theology, purely. And then there was Baptists that left um, because they were being persecuted in England and also went to Holland, just like the separatists did. And they got under the influence of Minnow Simons. And they started to uh, have similar views to how they baptized as well, and they began to embrace more of an Arminian theology. This group of people are called the General Baptists. So you can think about that. Particular, um, who did Christ die for? His particular church, general, he, Christ died for all. So that's how you can distinguish between those, and that's kind of a basic understanding of Calvinistic and Arminian theology in the view of salvation. The first English Baptist church, though, was established in 1609, by, by a man by the name of John Smith, Smith with a Y, and eventually Baptist churches popped up in England as a branch of Puritanism. There's three main tenets for Baptist churches in England. One, baptism was for believers. Maybe I've labored that point too much. Not for infants. It was for people that had a profession of faith, and they were baptized into the local church. Uh, the second 
tenet for these Baptist congregations was they local churches controlled their own business. So they don't report up through a hierarchy. There's not a bishop. There's not a church structure or a synod or anything like that that they report up to or presbytery. They are independent uh, churches. And thirdly, they would not support any local magistrate having control over any of their affairs. Uh, so this, this idea that the church is separate from the local civil authorities. So those are three main tenets that these Baptists had. So, what, so we have Baptist, the Baptist a denomination. It's not really a group. It's independent churches that ha- have some agreement. Um, but these Baptist churches finally start forming in America. The first congregation is formed in 1639 in Rhode Island. Um, also, some popped up in another colony called Pennsylvania as well. The leading pastor in Rhode Island was a man by the name of John Clark, Clark with an E. He wrote a book against his neighboring um, Christians in the Massachusetts Bay Colony, calling, call, and it was called Ill News from New England. And in that work, he described how the Puritans were treating them, the Baptists, much like the Anglicans were treating the Puritans in England. So it's almost like just role reversal here. Now the Puritans have their own colony, and all they're doing is treating us just like they were treated in England. So they continued to be persecuted because they would attempt to gain converts from the Puritan ranks. Uh, These people, if they got caught, uh, would be arrested in the Massachusetts Bay Colony for promoting what the Puritans called Anabaptism. See, there's already, they're painting this, uh, this movement with this broad brush from the previous century. They were a threat to Puritans because they opposed the state's involvement in the church. And once again, it's important to realize this. The, the whole uh, covenantal community was at stake for the Puritans. So as another um, movement or religious um, sect would come onto the scene and affect them, that affected their covenant community. community. Um, ultimately, though, the Baptists did not play too significant a role in uh, the colonies until after the Great Awakening. But you can see already how a minority group like the Baptists were able to begin to flourish in America in their own colony. So that's kind of this idea in America that is the people that are coming to America that have um, less than um, typical views for a given area in Europe. Uh, maybe they were ostracized there or they're a religious minority. As they get to America, they get space. They, are, they have the opportunity to, to, to create a colony, and they begin to flourish uh, when they're not under the hand. And, and not always is that hand a, a killing or a persecuting hand of a, a, a greater state church, but sometimes it's just one that's pervasive in their lives. So the Baptists uh, begin to flourish in America, in Rhode Island and Pennsylvania primarily. The next group I want to talk to you about, and lastly, is the Quakers. Uh, the reason I'm talking about both the Baptists and the Quakers is because the Baptists being primarily in Rhode Island, and the Quakers are the ones that are responsible for the founding of Pennsylvania. Um, the Quakers, who at the time were actually called the Friends, um, according to their founder, a man by the name of George 
Fox. Uh, I think he, just like the term Anabaptist is a pejorative term, the term Quaker is as well. And George Fox actually had a, a moment with the king in England, and he refused to bow to him. His Anabaptist uh, anti-traditional leanings were at play. And the king asked him why he did that, and George Fox rebutted him by saying, you should be quaking in fear of God. From that time, the king started calling the friends the Quakers. Um, these Quakers did not uh, fit in in England, so they, they tried to move across the Atlantic as well, like we've seen with all these other groups. And they tried to settle in the Massachusetts Bay Colony, but they were persecuted there. Some of them were killed. So you can see where the Puritans are getting some bad rap, especially when it comes to the idea of being tolerant of other viewpoints. But they ended up in Rhode Island, where Roger Williams accepted them and his great passion of uh, allowing all, uh, allowing religious freedom in his colony, yet he kind of begrudgingly allowed them to be accepted into the settlement. Um, However, they found their greatest opportunity for settlement and freedom in the colony that would be called Pennsylvania, initially called just Sylvania, which is Latin for the woods. Um, so Penn means, Pennsylvania means Penn's woods. Um, this land was actually granted by the king of England to a man by the name of William Penn. William Penn is this man who, uh, he, his father was a fa- famous Navy uh, admiral, admiral, I think, um, who was very successful and actually had seized some major islands that helped the British with their trade. And when he died, the king owed him a great debt. And William Penn was this admiral's son. So in order to get out of that debt, the uh, king granted William Penn um, this land in what's now called Pennsylvania, also granted him land in Delaware as well. But William Penn had become an avid um, Quaker or a friend at that time and a a great follower of George Fox. And what ended up happening in the establishment of the colony, which ended up being called Pennsylvania, became the most secure place for religious freedom in the world. Uh, So this this very um, American melting pot of, of religious diversity Um, a Christian religious diversity, um, owes a lot of its um, diversity to places like Rhode Island, but then a larger place like Pennsylvania. Um, So many people from German and Dutch origins, so think Reformed people, Dutch Reformed, even German, some Lutheran, but even some more what we would call pietists. These people whose Christianity was not part of the mainstream flocked to Pennsylvania. So these people kind of helped to make up the um, melting pot of diversity that was happening in American Christianity. Um, there's still more that we could talk about with that, how, how influential people like the German pietists were, the Dutch Reformed, and we barely even touched on how influential the Anglican Church was. Um, but I think it's a little much to keep piling on here. But what we need to see is that the colonies in America represented a variety of religious views, Christian views. A lot of those are Orthodox Christian views, some of them not, 
Um, but this, this kind of sets the stage for what America uh, is as a, as a set of colonies, this new world, and then what America is going to be as a new nation um, after the revolution in 1776. So that's the lesson for today. I hope you can see that God has used uh, just his providential power to bring about his purposes in his church, and he's been faithful to do that uh, through the ages, and primarily we can see that here in what he's done in uh, just colonial America. And I, I would recommend to you that you look at these things a little bit more on your own, look into these characters, read about the Quakers, read about Roger Williams, uh, read about uh, the Puritans of New England as well. And then next week we'll get together and we'll talk about the Great Awakening, the beginning parts of the Great Awakening and some of those really famous characters that we love to talk about like Whitfield and Edwards and the Wesley brothers and the Moravians. So all sorts of things to look forward to next week. Uh, I hope you have a blessed week and now we'll uh, go worship the Lord together um, in our homes, uh, but together in spirit. And uh, I'll pray for us and then we'll go. Father, we thank you for today. Lord, it's a great reminder of your faithfulness and your love for your people, how you save to the uttermost. Oh, Lord, I, th- I praise you for faithful examples who throughout history, Lord, have desired to be uh, faithful to your scriptures and to your, um, how you've revealed yourself to us through your word. Lord, we praise you for Jesus. Praise you, Lord, for his perfect sacrifice on our behalf. Lord, we ask that you would help us to worship you um, in spirit and truth um, from our homes. Pray, Lord, that we would honor you. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see you as more glorious this week. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see you as holding us and keeping us. And Father, we long for the day that we can gather again together as a local body. But in these times, Lord, we depend on you. I pray you would help us. We love you, Lord. In Christ's name I pray, amen.